Come, O Come, Emmanuel would probably rank as my top Advent carol. What does the song stir in you when you hear it? Hmm, good question. It's always been a significant part of my life since I was a youngster, from when I was singing in choirs and then started playing the organ as well. There's something about the unity of text and poetry that that really speaks to me, and I, indeed I think speaks to, to many people. This is Cameron Upchurch. I'm chapel organist and head of keyboard at St. John's College, which is an Anglican boys' school here in Johannesburg, South Africa. And I'm also director of music of the local Jesuit parish, Holy Trinity in Bramfontein. Cameron canvassed some of the boys at school about the carols that they most enjoy singing. And their favorite is, hands down, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. One of them said to me, So I like it so much because it's not like any other Christmas carol that we sing. Because he says, to me, it sounds like it's mysterious. And of course, some teenagers will, in their inimitable way, use words like epic. They said, oh, so it's just, it's the most epic tune. It's just so good to sing. (laughs) I wasn't expecting teenage boys to prefer the haunting hymn or to call it epic. That's high praise. But when you poll Catholics about when the Advent season truly begins, they'll often point you to this very song. When I think of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, I think of eeriness a little bit. Yeah, that's classic Advent. You know, it seems like you sing it every Sunday, a week after week. It's not super boisterously happy, but I think it's, it's really beautiful and solemn. I remember back in Mr. Brown's fifth grade class, at the cathedral school in Charleston, South Carolina, how we had to sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So just a very pleasant childhood memory. For many, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel rings in the season. And this brings us to an important distinction. That is between Christmas and Advent. Advent's the time when you remember that something good is on its way, even if it's not there right now. It's a time of waiting. It's a time we're preparing for the big, the big moment, you know, the arrival, the birth of Jesus. There's this buzz that you feel, and that's what is Advent to me. And then on the flip side, Christmas is about rest and peace. Advent is the preparation. Christmas is the arrival. And the gift is Jesus, is this person like us who came to be our friend. Welcome to Hark, a podcast about the meaning and the making of our favorite Christmas carols. I'm your host, Maggie Van Dorn. Over the next four weeks of Advent, we'll be unwrapping one song at a time. We'll look at both the musical development of these jingles, along with the religious messages baked into their lyrics. On this episode, we're diving into the great hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel which is regarded by many as the opening act for Advent. 
Simply put, Advent is the liturgical season that prepares us for the celebration of Christmas. Now, of course, in our wider culture, there is also a season of preparation that involves shopping and decorating. But for Christians, it's important not to confuse Macy's holiday window displays with Advent. To help me further make this distinction without turning into a finger-wagging Grinch, I've brought on one of the most iconic voices in Catholic liturgy today. I'm Father Rock O'Connor. I've been a Jesuit for 54 years, ordained for 42. Rock is one of the original members of the St. Louis Jesuits, the band of six composers and priestly comrades who we have to thank for the songs that so many of us grew up singing at Mass. So come to the water that fully wrote. Obviously, uh, Dufford's piece, uh, Be Not Afraid. You shall cross the barren desert, but you shall not die of thirst. You shall and so Rock says, liturgically speaking, Advent is really its own season. Each season has its own trajectory or vector, or another way to put it is location that were established before God through the scripture readings mainly. Advent is a season like Lent is a season, or like Easter or Pentecost or even ordinary time. And the celebration of the liturgy is infused with all the colors, scents, and music befitting that season. But it's not just a change in decor. It's all meant to signal a change within us as well. We're situated before God in a way that's just different from the others. And, you know, the classic thing that's been talked about with Advent is, oh, it's the coming of God. We're waiting for God. We're waiting for God. You know, to be honest, if I look at my own life, I'm not waiting for God. I got other stuff to do. The problem is not Santa or parties or buying gifts per se. It's that sometimes these things crowd out our deepest longings. And so culturally, we are in this country pretty much sprung free from Advent into a season of buying and partying, avoiding the longing because it's too painful. And what do you think is lost when we do that? Our humanity. It's so difficult to be vulnerable before God to meet myself as vulnerable and be vulnerable with anybody else. Because emptiness or envy or pride or whatever you and I avoid in our lives, there's plenty of it. We live in bunkers. We live ready to fight, self-protected. I want to be met by God in my grandeur and my wonderfulness and my all that stuff like that. I think I'd say I avoid not only my humanity, but the possibility of holiness. So what makes O Come, O Come, Emmanuel a good song for liturgy? It works, number one. 
it works. The melody works. I think it does express something in the human soul, which is, oh, come, oh, come. Please make things right. I asked Rock how, as a music director, he would play the song in mass. It's possible to do it either very gently, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, or to attack it, which is sforzando or something, or marcato, or, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. For Rock, these aren't just stylistic choices. He sees within each performance an opportunity to recall that divine longing. You know, when you talked about the longing of it, how do we get in touch with that? I mean, I know what it means to want a new computer, to want a new iPhone. I know what it means to want all kinds of stuff. But to long for a Savior to long for someone who will come and speak to me in my life that says, do you ever think of going this way instead of the way you're going? That's hard to long for, for a lot of us. It certainly is for me. Well, it also, it's longing for a change we're not even sure we want. And we don't know what it is. Therefore, the uncertainty creates the need to control it, which creates resistance against it. Now, I think it's possible to sing this piece in the resistance. To sing it honestly for most of us then. Yeah. yeah. And so how might that sound? I think it'd have to be set up with some words. That's one thing. Or, you know, to sing it in various ways, a cappella, for the first several weeks, if you want to do it that way. And then to reflect on it in a homily and say, can we at this moment then approach this piece with longing instead of just wanting or demanding. Powerful distinction to make. Yeah. And I also really like this idea that you're offering that although we know, at least in theory, what the season of Advent calls us to, this real authentic vulnerability, although we know that, it's pretty hard to inhabit that. Exactly. Or to be in that. And that's also okay. Right. And the music that we have accompanying us in this time can also give space for whatever state of longing or desire we reside in. I like the word inhabit, that I inhabit my location and I'm speaking to Christ. Now, Emmanuel, God with us. Well, how's that working for you? Is God with you? Well, maybe not, but maybe it's blah, blah, blah. But you could say, can you talk to God out of that? Are you frustrated? Are you happy? Are you glad that God's off your back or what? You know, how do you inhabit the place, the location where you're at? And sing it. There's a reason why this song is so evocative of human longing, or epic, as the choir boys say. It began many, many centuries ago. In the monasteries of Europe. Here's Cameron Upchurch again. We're looking at a time in which the monasteries were really rising to great prominence throughout Europe in particular, and were indeed becoming the powerhouses, if you like, of liturgical life, even economic life, social life. They were the center of life in communities. 
In other words, monasteries weren't only for monks and nuns. You probably found that the life of the layman, the laywoman, would have been defined entirely by the church year. It would have been defined by seasons. Seasons like winter, spring, summer, and fall. But also like the liturgical seasons of Advent, Lent, Easter, and ordinary time. And this sense of seasonality, it provided a rhythm for lay Christians to live by. And I think that's, that's where its power resides. And it's within the depths of winter, the darkest days of the year, in the season of Advent, that we first hear a chant. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is derived from a monastic prayer called the O Antiphons. The great O Antiphons, as they are called, are a set of antiphons, there are seven of them, and they are designed to be sung before and after the Magnificat at the Office of Vespers, evening prayer, starting on the 17th of December, going right the way through to the 23rd of December, so just, just before Christmas Eve. So technically we're a couple weeks early in playing this, but as you'll hear from Cameron, the reason O Come Emmanuel is such a quintessential Advent hymn is because it taps into that spirit of longing we've been talking about. Verse by verse, there's a sense of building momentum that crescendos at Christmas. And each of the antiphons begins with a different name for Christ, or the one we long for. A brief rundown of them in order. The first is known as Sapientia, Wisdom, Adonai, Lord, Radix Iese, the root of Jesse, Clavis David, the key of David, or Audience, my personal favorite, the rising dawn, Rex Gentium, king of the Gentiles, and then finally, O Emmanuel. And so, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is the final of these O Antiphons. And each of the O Antiphons are really like a beckoning, a, a welcoming, an invitation for Christ to come and break into the world. Exactly. The other really interesting thing about the O Antiphons is that the early medievals writing them were cryptic and clever and definitely wrote secret messages in the text. If you look at every first letter of each of the antiphons after the O, and you start with the last one, so you start with O Emmanuel, and you start with the letter E, if you read them in reverse, you end up with the two Latin words, ero cras, which simply means, tomorrow I will come. In the 8th or 9th century, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel would have been chanted in the Latin, Veni, Veni, Emmanuel. Cameron says that the ancient version is never too far away. Veni, Veni, Emmanuel, captivum solve Israel. I think we can help people experience the richness of it by including older settings of the tune that people might not be familiar with. So, for example, I would 
In the parish situation, I might very well have an antiphon sung in the original plainchant tune, which we know, and then within the same celebration have it sung in translation to the familiar tune that everyone knows and try and make the link between the ancient antiphons and a more modern understanding and appreciation of them. In other words, begin with the old and gradually move to the new. Cameron, would you like to sing some of this? Not to put you on the spot. <laughs> let's, have, let's have a look here, Maggie. I'm making no promises, but let's see. So this would be the final antiphon, antiphon number seven, O Emmanuel, in its chant form. Rex et Expectatio et salvatoriarum. And you could link that to O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, etc., etc. Uh, because fortunately, the mode of the chant and the mode of the hymn tune are the same, so they can actually match. What does that mean? The modes are, in a nutshell, the precursors of what we would call keys. We now understand major keys and minor keys, for example. There were eight modes which were inherited from the Greeks by the Romans and codified into eight sets, which the church then used to particularly sing the Psalms to sing the psalms during the, the celebration of the liturgy of the hours. And all chants can be classified according to one of the eight modes. So it's quite fortunate that these O antiphons share the similarities in mode with the tune that we know for O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So how does this hymn go from mysterious Gregorian chant to the official headliner of the Advent season? Well, it took a few years, maybe 900, give or take. It only surfaces, as far as we know, in 1710 in the, oh, this is a glorious name, in the Salteriolum Cancionum Catholicarum. Oh my goodness, what does that mean? Um, it's basically just a collection of songs, Catholic songs, as it were, which was first published in Cologne in 1610. And the edition or the volume we're referring to is 1710. It was begun by the Jesuit hymnographer Johannes Herrenstorff in 1610. So this is actually arguably a song with Jesuit roots. It certainly is recorded in a book that has Jesuit roots, that's for sure. And because of the extensive Jesuit schooling system of the time, this music was spread far and wide. So certainly the Society of Jesus would have had some role to play in the dissemination of these metrical hymn texts and tunes. The first time that we come across the tune being married to the words, as it were, is in 1851, which is quite a lot later. The translator of the Latin 
text into the English was John Mason Neal, who was an Anglican clergyman and scholar. If there ever was a romantic, John Mason Neal was it. His story has all the elements of a brilliant yet tortured artist who wasn't fully appreciated in his own time. Neal was born in London in 1818. He was only five years old when his father died. Although he was chronically ill, Neil proved to be an excellent student and devoured books, especially on the ancient hymnody. When he became an Anglican clergyman at 24, he was assigned a parish, but very soon after was deemed too sick to run it. So instead, he ran an almshouse for the poor called Sackmore College. There, he helped found the Sisterhood of St. Margaret, a religious order that would care for the sick, widowed, and orphaned. And of course, he continued to compose and translate music. But John Mason Neal wasn't like the other composers. He had a strong penchant for Greek and Latin texts, and while this made him a bit of an oddball, it would become a hallmark trait of 19th century romanticism. If you look to poets like Byron, Shelley, or Keats, you'll see a similar nostalgia at play. There is a resurgence and a yearning for days gone by and what they, I suppose, would have viewed as the exotic. And so I don't think it's any accident that hymns like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which does, I suppose, have a, a haunting nature to its tune, could definitely allude to a Victorian sense of mystery, perhaps. And in the church, this classic revival had its own name. The context is that of the Oxford movement, in which a part of the Anglican Church was seeking to introduce or reintroduce aspects of Catholic theology and Catholic liturgical practice into the Anglican Church. And at the time, it can be said that many of them were viewed with very great suspicion by the establishment. I remember reading a story about John Mason Neal a few years ago. I don't know where I read it, but there was a reference to him in which someone said he was trying to sneak Catholic practices back into the Anglican Church. So many of the things Neal loved and the Oxford movement stood for, things like Gregorian chant, classical texts, Latin, Greek, they're all the patrimony of the Catholic tradition. And as Cameron says, this was an incredibly sensitive issue at the time. His contemporary, John Henry Newman, was an Anglican priest and a leader of the Oxford movement. And in 1848, he converted to the Catholic faith and was later ordained a Catholic priest and made a cardinal. Many feared that John Mason Neal would be next. Neal became a despised figure. Mobs threatened to stone him and set fire to his home. And one time, he was actually mauled while attending the funeral of one of the sisters at Sackmore. So it wasn't easy to be a Protestant minister with a Catholic aesthetic. Nonetheless, Neil continued to steep himself in the old world of Greek and Latin hymns. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is his best-known translation and was included in the 1861 collection entitled Hymns Ancient and Modern. And the tune he paired with the text? It is rather dramatic. And so only in 1966, the great musicologist and early music specialist Mary Berry discovers the tune, this time in France, in the National Library of France, in a series of manuscripts 
that is not a missile, but a processional. So it's a whole lot of processional chants for Christian burial. John Mason Neal set O Come, O Come, Emmanuel to the tune of an old funeral dirge. Interesting choice, right? That's like singing Amazing Grace for the holidays. But it's precisely because of this tune that the song is sung so often to this day. I think one of the glories of this tune is that it is so versatile. You can use it in a wide variety of liturgical settings and it will always work. You can perform it in a grand cathedral with a beautiful organ, large choir accompanied by brass and a massive congregation. You can scale it right down and have it sung by a few voices in a small chapel during Vespers or any one of the celebrations of the Liturgy of the Hours. You could even accompany it on the guitar because of its modal nature. A few years ago, we were at our annual Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols in the Anglican Cathedral. Without a doubt, the boys' favorite, favorite Advent or Christmas carol is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. They love it more than any, any other. Possibly O Come, We Faithful will be a close second, but there's something about the tune and there's something about it being sung in a big space by hundreds of voices that seems to grab the imagination. But anyway, we were in St. Mary's and they've got a magnificent organ and our treatment of the tune that year was as a large, very grand piece. And... We just got to the end of the first verse after the first set of rejoice, rejoice, and the organ cut out completely. There had been a power dip and the organ lost power, and I had no instrument to play all of a sudden in the middle of this service. My colleague who was conducting the hymns looked over to me with horror in his eyes, and I just said to him, keep going, just keep going. And I almost had to leopard crawl in front of the choir across the front of the cathedral to the room where the distribution board was, find the power switch, flick it back up, scurry back to the organ, and be in place just in time for the last verse. But, you know, I imagine that it still worked. It worked beautifully because in the interim, you had this vast cathedral, 1,500 voices singing this beautiful tune in unison with no accompaniment. It was quite spine-tingling. And then in the final verse, the organ arrived back and we shook the foundations. So to tie everything up with a big red bow, here's what we've learned about O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's one of the oldest carols in circulation, with a text that dates back to the 8th century. The O in O Come, Emmanuel is from the O Antiphons, the seven verses prayed in the final week of Advent. John Mason Neal, a true Victorian romantic, defied the social and religious expectations of his time in order to retrieve this ancient hymn and set it to the tune that we know today. And the song is so synonymous with Advent and so versatile that you can play it even when the power goes out. To close this episode, 
we'll leave you with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which has been generously gifted to Hark by Salt of the Sound. Thank you for listening to Hark. Before you go, I've got one more piece of good news. Many of the voices you're hearing in Hark are my colleagues at America, so you know they're thoughtful, but they're also incredible writers. And especially for this Advent season, we've written daily reflections for our digital subscribers. To sign up, go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. The link is in the show notes. Hark is a production of America Media. This episode was written by me, Maggie Van Dorn, and co-produced with Ricardo Da Silva. Sound engineering, along with our theme music, is courtesy of Frank Tucson. Production assistance from Kira Hanlon. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Special thanks to the Ignatian Scola, Salt of the Sound, and Echoes Blue Music for their recordings of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And to Frank Tucson for providing instrumental accompaniment to the Scola and to Cameron Upchurch, Frank Tucson, and Ricardo Da Silva for vocals on this episode. For American Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn. Thanks for caroling with us. On the next episode of Hark, we'll unwrap a Christmas carol that started off as a celebration of the Gutenberg printing press. So the original text is talking about Gutenberg, the German man who brought light to everyone. It's a very uplifting text, but certainly not a Christmas text.